It's mid-season report card time for each team in the Central Division, and that's why the episode runtime will be, I anticipate, longer. The teams with games up to the All-Star break since the last episode are included, and the team's order is by points percentage that, by the way, I'm pretty sure I have been doing since and including the January 10th edition. There is some indication as to what teams should be buyers and sellers at the trade deadline. Yeah, we're already talking about it. In some cases, I may just be reminding you what has generally been leaked as what teams plan to do or players that come up in those conversations. I'm more for teams jumping the deadline day deal, which has been non-existent, to give a new player more time to integrate into his new team, prefer teams standing pat to not adding, and consider that good decision-making, and hate selling for the sake of selling, but it's better than buying. All of which is probably better explained another time closer to or after the trade deadline. This is a good time to take stock of what the teams did to arrive at or just past the mid-season point, and well the staying power of how everything team standing-wise sits. In my humble opinion, take a screenshot of the current standings. Come playoff time, I think it looks a lot like it currently does in the Central Division. Colorado is top in the Central Division, and honestly, only Colorado's own play changed that reality. Colorado have to stay to form because Minnesota is going to keep pace and challenge them for tops in the division this year. It should end up one Colorado, two Minnesota, but those are the division's top two teams. And much more so than a year ago, I think underestimating Minnesota would be something that would be naive to do. The battle for third is a real one between Nashville and St. Louis in the division. And that actually keeps both teams trying to continue the consistency for the most part the two teams respectively did an excellent job of playing with in the first half. I lean towards three St. Louis, four Nashville, but it is, as I said, a competitive battle, not a given, who finishes third. Dallas catching one of those teams looks unlikely. And therefore, Dallas's real goal is to get as close to them as possible point-wise and snag the last division wildcard spot over what's best described as the clusterfuck Pacific Division mediocrity that literally has the division's team's fifth in points in the Western Conference down, but also five or six deep, just under 600 point percentage, that Dallas needs to be above that point percentage to avoid falling under the 575 point percentage mark that could jeopardize making the playoffs. A point percentage total, they are below presently. The third spot Pacific Division playoff team could very well have less points than the division second wildcard team. If that's the case, two Central Division teams would have gotten wildcard spots and Dallas the likely last playoff bound team. Dallas does have their work cut out to do that. Winnipeg hasn't demonstrated keeping pace even with Dallas, who have their work cut out to pull off a playoff berth, that it's time to admit while it will be near to the end of the season that Winnipeg officially is eliminated. Winnipeg in many ways didn't do enough in the first half to have essentially have eliminated themselves. Chicago was never at 500 point percentage once this season, and for that reason, after their terrible start, they really eliminated themselves even though you can argue they had a better January than Winnipeg. It just goes to show you how hard making up ground in the NHL is. Arizona, for a team that is supposed to be last in the NHL, turns out can't do that right for Shane Wright. A mid-season report card that for seven teams says you can play better, and for one team says can you not play better? Welcome to Central Division Hockey, the podcast. I'm your NHL outsider, Tim Bigelow. I am also not qualified as a teacher to actually be handing out report cards, but mid-season observations has zero clickbait value as an episode title. Favorites Colorado are set up more for a fall, even prior to the pair of streaks, 10-game win and 18 home win streaks ending with next to NHL last-placed Arizona. Had Colorado won and those streaks still be in place, the mile-high bar placed on this team each year continues as a year ago, cup or bust in Colorado, and winning the Stanley Cup is the hardest 
pro trophy to win, that the favorite tag is more likely to end up in disappointment. The next step is a deep playoff run. Disappointment, yet the playoff format makes round two the Achilles heel still. I did predict, like everyone, Colorado would win the Central Division at the year's start. I still didn't think Colorado would or will walk away with it without some competition. The last game before the All-Star break, streak busting with a Colorado 3-2 shootout home loss to Arizona Tuesday. A penalty-filled scoreless first included Colorado not scoring on a brief 5-on-3 power play for shadowing. In the second, Nazem Kadri from the corner cuts across the crease, avoids Arizona goalie Scott Wedgwood's poach-jack attempt, awaits the goalie to lift a backhander to open scoring. Arizona's Alex Galchenyuk's goal ties it. A last-minute Colorado 3-on-2, Miko Rantanen, off the rush, makes it 2-1 through 40 with a 27-17 Colorado shot on goal advantage. Colorado's Devin Taves rings the short side post on a breakaway in the third on an awful Arizona line change, who survived 2 at 6-on-5 with 38 seconds left in regulation. Have Arizona's loss in Krause, net front scramble, backhander goal, to force overtime. Colorado take a penalty in overtime and play shorthanded for all but the last 14 seconds of the 2:14 to play. Arizona's Galchenyuk ends up being the lone shootout scorer to end Colorado's streaks. What happened? I don't know. Colorado not getting a first period power play goal and in a 17 shot on goal second not scoring three instead of two goals that would have made it say four to one instead of two one after 40 minutes. Arizona get a bounce and Arizona coach Andre Turnier goes with Galchenyuk as a shooter in the shootout and voila upset fait complete. Colorado 40-24 shot on goal advantage in the game and they didn't win a game they should win. The OT penalty on Colorado was weak, especially when Arizona defenseman Jacob Chikrin cross-checked Andre Burakovsky in the third with no call that was easily cross-checking or minimally roughing that I can only think the refs felt Burakovsky embellished, and I'm not sure he did. However, focusing on one play or one call over a 65-minute effort that didn't result in more than two goals with a heavy shot and goal advantage such as Colorado had against Arizona is misplaced. Colorado shouldn't have been in a one-goal game going into the third where one goal ties the game and any penalty non-calls or calls become heightened because it's a one-goal game. A lot of good chances went off post. I didn't much think the goaltending stops were extraordinary. Simply saves that you expect your goalies to be making. Even in a loss, Colorado picked up a loser point. They have points in 17 straight games. It's mid-December and the in-season, pre-season-like lineup game versus Nashville for both teams. Colorado has last lost in regulation. But really... Go back further, I'd say it's the December 1st loss in Toronto that actually qualifies as the legitimate last regulation loss for Colorado. That's essentially two months without one. Mid-season report card, point percentage Colorado is tops in the NHL. Not just the Western Conference or the Central Division, the league. The goaltending of Darcy Kemper, 21-5-2 record with a shutout is as good as compared to a year ago from the starter position. One of the things former Colorado goalie Philip Grubauer enjoyed was facing the NHL's fewest shots on goal average per game last year. This year, Colorado's outfit ranks a respectable 13th at 30.8 average shots on goal against per game. But it's not the 25 or fewer of a year ago, and that's why I think the job Kemper is doing should maybe be getting a bit more appreciation. Backup goalie Pavel Francois is 7-1-0 record, including getting back-to-back game shutouts since his return. It's a really small sample size because of his injuries, and his staying healthy is paramount. Now, Florida backup goalie Jonas Johansson hasn't seen game action since getting picked up off waivers by Florida. His depth would have been nice to still have. 3-2-1 record while with the Avs. I just think about the 2020 playoff bubble exit for Colorado being a lot about goalie injuries for Colorado and injuries to key players additionally. But they were on their fourth goalie in that 
seven-game loss that eliminated them. And as a GM, if I were Joe Sackick, I would seriously have kept this trio as part of the 23-player Colorado roster than risk losing one to waivers like they did. Kale McCarr and Devin Taves are top pair NHL All-Stars of this Colorado D group, even if only one was at the All-Star game. Sam Girard and a healthy Eric Johnson make the top four great. Rookie Bo Byram was great, but the concussion issue is concerning. And Jack Johnson would be the team's playing D group six, likely with EJ with Double J on the bottom pair if Byram's healthy. Colorado has used Curtis McDermott in low minutes on forward or defense and run really a 5D core if McDermott is on defense. Part of that also because Ryan Murray missing time and getting into only 22 games played as another bottom pair NHL option for the team. Honestly, Colorado was forced to use way more defensemen a year ago, and the balance, especially at full health, is good with arguably the NHL's best top pair able to play 25-plus minutes nightly. The second line, team lead point getter, second center Nazem Kadri gets his apology from me for saying Colorado would miss now Seattle forward Jonas Donskoy's goal production and Kadri didn't put up numbers in the regular season. There's a bad take for you. Kadri's team leading 60 points includes 19 goals and he is current at an assist per game with 41. Line mates Andre Burakovsky and Val Nishnushkin are already in double-digit scoring, and Nishnushkin has delivered goal production in addition to his usual excellent defensive play while having an elevated role. This second line is why Colorado is first in the NHL in point percentage. Not surprising is the top line, Miko Rantanen, again with the team leading goals with 24, and Captain Gabe Landeskog tied for second on the team with 19 goals. Remember a year ago, Rantanen was 30, while line mates were 20 goal getters. Nathan McKinnon, who has missed substantial time, is at 9 goals, but still well over a point-per-game player point-wise. His 34 assists second on Colorado that in 31 games played is actually at an over assist per game rate a strong second half from the trio and you're probably looking at a 40 30 and 20 goal production line that's rare to find rookie Alex Newhook's brief American Hockey League stint now has him driving the third line and in double digits and goals. I could very well see him ending up first in goals for rookies by the year's end. Logan O'Connor's emerged as an everyday regular and putting in valuable penalty kill minutes. JT Confer's quiet half-point bottom six production is good, as was waiver wire GM Joe Sackick found golden Nick Abe Kubel's fit with this team. In fairness, the forward group depth isn't as good as a year ago, but only slightly. What needs to be said is the consistency of the goal production of the second line found has actually put no pressure on the bottom six to produce like it had to in previous years. It's top heavy in the top six, but at least over two lines, not solely driven by the top line in hockey. Colorado quietly, NHL insiders will often say, are in on any player available in the rumor mill. Call it due diligence. In some ways, I think Kadri is the team's deadline rental. Colorado can't afford to give him the raise this coming offseason that he's probably going to get, and there are struggling NHL teams that will open up the checkbook. Think teams such as Philadelphia or Montreal wanting to improve at center. There's no Kadri extension and Colorado's too good to deal him. They need him for a deep run, so this is his one last chance at a run in Colorado. The goaltending, if healthy, is good enough to win, but will it be healthy enough? Colorado is also walking to a situation where Kemper is like Grubauer, pricing himself higher than Colorado wants to spend in its cap structure on goaltending. Remember, even now, $1 million of this year's salary is being paid by Arizona, not actually Colorado, of Kemper's salary. Colorado also need a team to take on an incoming player's salary to add anyone at the deadline. So I think the ask for goalies at the deadline for GM Sackick to do this would be costly on futures, but because of Fransos' inability to stay healthy, it might be the area I worry about most. 
Likewise, a depth defenseman or forward addition gets contemplated, but I'm not sure for Colorado it still won't come down to the current group's ability to get the job done. Colorado has a third round 2022 pick currently. No first, second, or fourth in the upcoming draft. I'd be tempted to stand pat then trade off more futures, but that doesn't mean I don't appreciate just how creatively good GM Sackick is. Just, for example, say Philadelphia winger Claude Giroux, whose name has come up with Colorado as a possible destination. Great vet player, mostly a winger, not a center in usage now. He really doesn't fit Colorado's top six to me, so essentially that's paying a high price for a third-line rental to move JT Comfort down the lineup on right wing could be worthwhile. It might not move the needle all that much. Is that worth what Philly will want to trade him to Colorado if he agrees to go? In all honesty, what I do know is GM Sackick seems when he does make an addition such as Devon Taves, no one even knew that Taves was available to get. So maybe we should be talking about, say, Detroit's Mark Stahl, just because that's a non-playoff team pending, unrestricted free agent vet defenseman that no one is talking about. That, to me, would be kind of EJ Insurance D addition move. Colorado, 44 games played, 32-8-4 and four at the All-Star break, 68 points, first in the Central, and by points percentage at 773, first in the NHL. This streak, overtime, losers of one, goal differential plus 54. Colorado's best home test is probably Tampa Bay out of the break after the in Dallas and home to Dallas set means way more to Dallas that it at least has intrigue. The next game after Colorado's in Vegas, one of two road games in Vegas in February. February's schedule at least has some overhyped games for Colorado, but I'm not sure it actually has much sizzle. That means for the most part, Colorado needs to manufacture their own good habits to stay atop their own game. And I like to think they continue along picking up points this month, going say 5-0-3 over the 8 in February they have to play. Until they lose in regulation, let's just continue with the expectation Colorado don't. The Athletic at the All-Star break has Colorado projected to finish with 120 points first in the NHL, so implied is winning the Western Conference and Central Division. A 24% chance to win the Stanley Cup, zero chance of missing the postseason, and let's be realistic, Colorado isn't missing the playoffs. As we turn our attention to Minnesota, I don't think I had an undervaluation taking Minnesota fourth as much as I had an overvaluation of the central teams I slotted finishing second and third, bouncing upward more than Minnesota maintaining its high-level play of a year ago. It's explainable when factoring both, and I quickly realized if anyone is knocking off Colorado for the division conference title this year, it's only Minnesota that will do so. Minnesota finished strong on a now division current best six-game win streak with Minnesota's 5-0 road win in Chicago Wednesday. Chicago All-Star forward Alex DeBrinkett's open ice neutral zone hit on Minnesota's Connor Dewar was deemed clean by the officials at the time. It also didn't see supplemental discipline action from the NHL player and supposed safety inconsistency department. Is a suspended player allowed to attend the All-Star game or not? I saw a number of reminds me of Colorado's Nazem Kadri's over-suspended postseason hit on St. Louis's Justin Falk on Twitter. The contact and the angle of impact is like a near sideswipe in both cases. Both hits were as dangerous. Both were open ice, both without intending head contact to me, but did make head contact. I already have zero respect for the NHL player safety department. I want a former skilled player like Paul Correa in charge of it as a starter to even acknowledging the NHL player safety department has any value. The NHL doesn't give a shit. They just didn't want to be replacing another all-star, and Dewar is a faithless NHL rookie fourth-liner by comparison. That shouldn't be how the NHL makes suspension decisions. Minnesota goalie Cam Talbot made 
a last-minute key save, pad save, on Chicago's Seth Jones to keep the game scoreless in the first. Minnesota's Frederick Rudrow's power play goal, Jordan Greenway's forecheck to set up Matt Zuccarello's goal, and Kirill Kaprizov's neutral zone stripping of Chicago's Kirby Dock for a give-and-go goal with Zuccarello, a prime example of the next-level playmaker and shooter chemistry of the duo. 3-0 Minnesota through 40. Chicago's best chance to stop Minnesota goalie Talbot's first shutout this year, 30 saves, was Philip Kurashev's post and Ryan Carpenter's rebound shot that was scooped by Minnesota's Brandon Duhame off the Minnesota goal line to preserve it in the middle frame. The third, off the rush, Minnesota's Kevin Fiala's five-hole goal and Chicago goalie Marc-Andre Fleury playing the puck and it's stopped on the wall by Minnesota as he doesn't get fully all of it and that leads to Nico Sturms returning to the lineup short side slot goal that ends Flurry's night five goals against 25 saves to me Flurry's frustration on his own clearing attempt that he knew he could have played the puck better on was explanation for his antics after the goal Minnesota 35-30 shot on goal advantage for the game Minnesota was without forward Marcus Foligno and defenseman Matt Dumba key players Chicago without Jonathan Taves Minnesota clearly the better team and their depth as a team rolling four lines key no Minnesota forward played over 18 and a half minutes time on ice the lowest Victor Rask at nine minutes 49 seconds time on ice however Connor Dewar was the second lowest at over 11 and a half average time on ice and every one of the forwards in between that total time on ice high and low the 6D group time on ice leader Jonas Brodin at 21:22 minutes time on ice with Dmitry Kulikov the lowest at 18 minutes 13 seconds and all the other D in between that high and low point. It's near to equal time on ice for each defenseman playing in the D group 6 for Minnesota in this game. If you hear anyone such as TNT panelist Anson Carter saying he's unsure about Minnesota's depth, and I have tons of respect for Carter when he played, he was exceptional, and he's a good analyst. And it shows nationally how little knowledgeable hockey people like him watch Minnesota to miss why Minnesota as a team is so good, even with two everyday key top-end players not fucking playing. Minnesota doesn't have a depth issue, nor a depth concern. That, if we were going to be talking about related to a Central Division team, is a Chicago issue. Mid-season report card, Minnesota goalie Cam Talbot, 18-8-1 record, one shutout, gets his first All-Star appearance. When he was out due to injury, Minnesota backup Capo Kakinen carried the workload exceptionally, like he did, likewise, a year ago. Kakinen's 10-2-2 record, and Seattle not selecting him in the expansion draft is one example of how badly they did select their team. With all due respect to defenseman Carson Soucy, the other obvious choice that they did take. The goalie tantum is again a duel for Minnesota that actually probably is the division's best pair. And that you would have said of them had all eight Central Division teams played in the same division a year ago when they were all over the place over three. And why some hockey people are still realizing it a season later that the upgrade from two years removed, Devin Dubnik and Alex Stalock as the goalie tantum, is a big piece to Minnesota's consistency over the past two years to being well above the playoff cutoff. The money saves separate Ryan Suter buyout from the Suter and Parisi buyout. Money in of Alex Golgoski is a wash. The playing value is this season's comparable as expected that the top 4D group Minnesota has didn't miss a beat. In fact, Golgoski fits better joining Jonas Brodin, Jarrett Spurgeon, and Matt Dumba as a better top 4, arguably. Even Spurgeon, who has missed of the four the most time to injury, Minnesota manages because of defensive depth to still remain strong. GM Gurm replaced Seattle expansion selection Susie and Ian Cole, a great solid bottom pair a year ago with John Merrill and Dmitry Kulikov, and it has provided the needed stability at a lower cost. Factor in Jordy Ben for size as the seventh man, or top prospect Kalen Addison for skill as replacement D players, and that bottom pair worry or managing injuries that gave me pause was unwarranted. That's a drop-off second to fourth prediction point that didn't happen. 
The forward group had a quick-lived top-six experiment. If you remember, Joel Eriksson-Eck was tried with Matt Zuccarello and Kirill Kaprizov as his wingers, while Ryan Hartman went with ex-line mates of a year ago, Jordan Greenway and Marcus Foligno. I wanted X-Line kept together, but I didn't envision Hartman simply switched with Kaprizov and Zuccarello as head coach Dean Evison did. Kaprizov has 19 goals, Hartman 18, and playmaker Zuccarello 14. Eck has 13 goals, Foligno 17, and Greenway is a fit with them. He still will produce more as his career goes, and like last year, that has Kevin Fiella additionally on a separate line. His 13 goals, after way more chances that you just knew it would come around, and has now with rookie Matt Boldy's four goals in 10 games, has both those players heating up between Frederick Goudreau, who's absolutely an upgrade on Marcus Johansson, who landed surprisingly, or not surprisingly, on the Seattle expansion team that can't score. Nico Sturm thus still slots as the most underrated fourth-line NHL center, and rookie Brandon Newhames out of nowhere minor league prospect to NHL regular emergence, another big factor. The other part of the drop from second to fourth pause was Minnesota's bottom six and center ice. Mostly, I thought Minnesota would miss vet center Nick Benino more. I was good to see Johansson gone. Parisi's buyout was needed. He really was playing fourth line. But I still saw on this roster Victor Rask and Nick Bukestad. Bukestad's played better when he's been healthy. And Rask is a 13th forward in and out, but not a regular because of the organizational depth of rookies Boldy, Duhame, and Connor Dewar, who have simply been better playable two-way low-cost options for the coach and save for Boldy making this team on the onset of camp, while even avid, knowledgeable Wild fans wouldn't have seen how well this forward group has again found a way to piece together into quite a dominant collective 12. Make no mistake, goal scoring by committee is what Minnesota does. Shared time on ice through more of a top nine spread, not top six heavy time on ice distribution and bottom six low minute deployment isn't the case. And that's essentially why I've got all day for Minnesota coach Dean Evison. Basically, then the two concerns weren't just addressed. The playing 12 forward group is actually better than last year's was. And every other part, the defense and goaltending, simply as good as it was. That's why quickly I said if anyone can knock Colorado out of top spot, it's Minnesota. They were comfortably a playoff team a year ago, and Minnesota will be again this year. I mused about a center upgrade several podcasts ago because everyone on the outside looking at this Minnesota roster really gets stuck on it. Eric Sinek is Selkie nominee deserving value and a lot of other NHL markets simply don't realize it. They look at Hartman and Goudreau and by the way Hartman's nearing 20 goals and for all I know think it's Rask and not Sturm playing fourth line center which simply isn't the case. Now, Minnesota insider Michael Russo did borrow on or after I'd mentioned it thought of putting a center in between Boldy and Fiala, such as rental Philadelphia's Claude Giroux or San Jose's Thomas Hurdle. We may be just thinking alike. He's really knowledgeable on this team. Giroux doesn't really play center as much as he used to, especially rid of Evander Kane. Kind of think San Jose re-ups on hurdle with a contract extension and doesn't trade them they're kind of in the playoff mix somewhat what i will credit russo fully for i think was that on a segment with sportsnet jeff merrick's show he was saying gm Gurren sees the minnesota wingers as the drivers of the offense that take is accurate to me vancouver's jt miller at center between boldy and fiella would be lights out except miller's not an unrestricted free agent rental That represents an upgrade on Goudreau. By the way, I still envision Goudreau on the fourth line wing, just pushing out Rask or sending him the other way along with picks to make the deal with Vancouver if it were possible. It still doesn't figure how Minnesota can re-sign Fiala next year when he's currently 5.1 million and bring on Miller's 5.25 million next year as well. But let's just pretend we don't have to worry about that. 
However, with this team, and I almost want GM Gurren to do it as a rental, even though the player that I want him to get has another year, so they go try and win it and then worry about that next year after this season's over. It's not like he has to be cap compliant for next year on a playoff run this year. I might trade away a pending UFA rental with a year on his contract in Miller after winning the cup by trading for him because you would also have won the Stanley Cup, right? If Minnesota stands pat, this team is still going to be in the playoffs, and Minnesota is going to be a tough team to knock out of the dance. If they do make an addition, and that player fits well, they, to me, become cup contender serious status. Minnesota, 41 games played, 28-10-3 record, 59 points. Points-wise, third in the Central, 720 point percentage, second in the Central and in the Western Conference. Streak, winners of six, goal differential plus 41. Minnesota, having played the fewest games in the first half, exactly half, have nine games, one every second day, with the exception of after the February 8th first game, so something like the 12th on for the rest of the month. It includes Eastern Conference powerhouse Carolina, Florida, and regular season good Toronto. Pacific Division good Calgary and middling Edmonton, and starts with one of two on the road versus division rival Winnipeg, who absolutely remain lost in the woods, I'd swear, since the November 26th drubbing Minnesota handed them. Dangerous because the talent there hasn't pieced it all together, but at any minute could. Minnesota, to me, will keep true to their point percentage consistency that has them second in point percentage in the Central Division and Western Conference. After February, I feel like Minnesota will be able to build off of February and put together a lot of multi-game win streaks all the way to the playoffs the rest of the regular season. The Athletic at the All-Star break has Minnesota projected to finish with 112 points. That would be second in the Western Conference and also in the Central Division. And a 7% chance to win the Stanley Cup. Zero chance of missing the postseason. Minnesota is on pace for 118 points over an 82-game schedule, both well above the playoff cutoff in either case. Let's take a break away and return to talk about surprising Nashville and also St. Louis on Central Division Hockey, the podcast, after this. This episode is made possible by PwC. When you put the right tech in the hands of the right people, good things happen. It powers change. It accelerates innovation. It keeps you a step ahead. Our community of solvers brings the right tech to drive real results. It all adds up to The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. How would you like to come home to a bartender who will fix you any cocktail you want? I'll have an old-fashioned. I'll have a margarita. Now you can with the Bartesian Home Cocktail Maker. Bartesian is a sleek machine the size of a coffee maker that makes premium cocktails at the touch of a button. Choose from over 50 different cocktails, from classics to the most exotic premium cocktails served in the best bars today. You'll always get freshly mixed, perfectly balanced cocktails with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. And now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever at bartesian.com holiday. Entertaining? The Bartesian is ideal for parties. No need to stock all kinds of individual mixers for complicated recipes. Every guest gets the cocktail of their choice in seconds. The Bartesian makes a wonderful gift for anyone who loves a fine premium cocktail. Now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever. It's available right now, only at bartesian.com slash holiday. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com slash holiday for Bartesian's best deal ever. Only at bartesian.com slash holiday. Tired of long waits and rushed care at the ER and urgent care clinic? Next time, stay home and let Dispatch Health bring the power of the hospital to you. I call Dispatch Health. A care team of medical professionals actually come to your house. They're the same caliber of people that you would see if you were at a hospital or an urgent care. Dispatch Health can treat most non-life-threatening emergencies. They can do the x-rays, they can do stitches. Urinary tract infections, blood tests, urinalysis, ultrasound. It's almost everything that they can do at the ER. You never feel rushed. They're there for you and only you. I felt like their only patient. And it costs no more than a trip to urgent care because Dispatch Health is covered by most insurance, including Medicare. See if we serve your home 
at DispatchHealth.com. Dispatch Health really went above and beyond. It's wonderful to have care come to your home. House calls are back, and they're better than ever. Learn more at DispatchHealth.com. Welcome back. Of the team predictions at season start, I was most off on Nashville. I predicted Nashville to finish 7th. Ouch. After the start in Chicago to their season and Arizona keeping their end of the bargain up, well, you realize quickly Nashville is at worst 6th divisionally. And by the winter classic St. Louis and Minnesota game, Nashville's upgraded to serious wildcard contender. And by the All-Star break, a division top 3 seeded contender to challenge with St. Louis. In fairness, most Nashville predictions would divisionally pre-regular season have ranked Nashville between 4th and 7th and their current 3rd best division Western Conference point percentage is the division's surprise well above everyone's expected predictions. Nashville goes into the All-Star break with a 4-2 home win over Vancouver Tuesday. A Vancouver 2-on-1 opens the scoring. 5.5 to go in the first. Nashville's Ryan Johansson's off-the-rush short side shelf goal ties it. A minute 8 seconds after, Nashville's Philip Ford high tip on a point shot put Nashville in front. Vancouver, goal by Oliver ekman Larson on a spin-and-fire point shot, finds its way through traffic, two all through one. Second, the teams trade high-danger chances that go off the post. In Nashville, Forsberg power play goal, his second of the game, and team-leading 24th of the year, is a game-winning goal, a nice water bottle pop in one-timer from the top of the circle. Early in the third, Nashville's Tanner Janot's net front rebound goal off a point shot provides the insurance marker off the Nashville cycle. Vancouver was playing on back-to-backs, and typically the team that did play in this case, Vancouver, is stronger early over a team that is more rested but hasn't been in game action. Usually, as a game gets into the back half, the more rested team builds and the back-to-back team fades. The key is Nashville riding out the early Vancouver pressure, as they did, and getting out of the first tied on the scoreboard. Vancouver was also strong in the second, the special teams giving Nashville the lead and eventual game-winning goal, even though Nashville was outshot 14-5. That's on Nashville goalie Saros. Nashville finishes strong as they're undefeated in regulation record when leading after after two properly reflects, Nashville didn't sit back and push the pace in the third, and Vancouver was on fumes by the end and unable to get offensive zone time. Pretty sure when they pulled goalie Demko, Vancouver had possession in their own defensive zone, and that should tell you how well Nashville was playing in the third for a team on their own half of center ice trying to get the extra skater out. Vancouver couldn't get offensive possession with any sustainability, and that's when you normally pull your netminder. Mid-season report card, first time NHL All-Star UC Soros, 24-11-3 record, two shutouts, has been the division's best goalie, and rightfully in the Vesna Trophy conversation. I did wonder about his ability to keep his exceptional stats of last year's second half with a full season's workload. The idea that that has to do with his smaller stature wasn't why I had my reservations. It's probably workload-wise, more taxing to be playing 65-plus games, for a bigger goalie if you think about it or the focus of conditioning required isn't a size or stature based one to have it all that he hadn't been the true number one factors in solely because how would Soros be knowing he absolutely was with Pekka Rene retired Soros shut out the critics including myself and it's Soros's workload that's impressive backup David Riddick three two and one six games started and top prospect Connor Ingram played in two games give me an above average NHL goalie and you've got the key piece to an NHL playoff team defensively Roman Yossi is on his Norris level value 44 games played 44 points that includes double digit goals now extended Matthias Ekholm is the stabilizing piece and I've been making that argument for years injured some but otherwise Dante Fabro is now top four value and the only difference is Nashville fans watched his development at the NHL level because in my opinion he was rushed versus Alex Carrier who did it checks notes Milwaukee Nashville's AHL team that it is hard to remember what it is underappreciated. What people will often forget, it's Fabro who's two years younger than Carrier. Now a prime aged, low cost two way defenseman replacing high cost, always injured, sadly, Ryan Ellis. He has played four games for Philly this year, five points. Ellis is great when he's healthy. 
2018-19 with Nashville was the last time he actually was. Three years removed and 20-plus games missed each season, minimally after. Part of the return, defenseman Philip Myers, 20 games played, three points, has struggled. And at 25, what 20 games has taught me, he is a puck-moving and not as strong defensively defenseman. His best asset is his shot, not just because it's hard, but the accuracy he has with it. Those assists are primary ones because of set deflections created by his shot. However, Matt Benning as a five-spot bottom pair D is the most improved of this Nashville group, and I can't deny the physicality in big hits, such as the one on OEL in the Vancouver game that vet Mark Borowicki brings. It's a good group. It's not as strong as the top-tier division rivals in the Central Division. It's functionally, situationally built in its construction. If the right Nashville D players are out in the right spots in the game, it's effective. If the wrong ones get caught out, Soros is required to bail them out. Truth is, Soros often does. The biggest question was a season removed from a pair of team-leading 13-goal getters. Who was going to score for Nashville? There were no big additions to the forward group. At the season's midpoint, two players on the top line, Philip Forsberg and Matt Deshane, the wingers, are over 20 goals. Franchise Philip, 24, and Dutchie, 21, at the All-Star break. Forsberg's over a point-per-game production, and Deshane's 41 points in 42 games played, as close as a player could be to it. How Forsberg's stats without dynamic departed linemate Victor Arvidsson would be has been answered. Deshane's play and Mikhail Granlund's uptick as the playmaker between them is notable because the two are shooting out the goal lights. Granlin's team-leading 32 assists gets him finally close to just below point-per-game value of a top-six top-line player that he hasn't been prior to this year in Nashville. Ryan Johansson, 13 goals. Luke Cunnan, 10 goals, both at double digits. And keep in mind, Johansson's current goal total was last year's team lead between Granlin and Seattle expansion selected Kelly Yarncroke. Not too often addition by actual player subtraction works, but Nashville is that team this year. Plus, I still stand by if Granlin is tied for the team lead in goals, there's a problem because he isn't a goal scorer. As a playmaker with line mates that have 30 to 40 goals over a full year, Granlin is worth his contract for the first time. And that 30 to 40 benchmark for Duchesne and Forsberg is realistic this year. Add the herd identity line, rookie, because last season was shortened, so he'd have ellipsed the games played to qualify still easily if it wasn't, Tanner Janot with 14, and my favorite predator, Yakov Trenin, with 10. That's the secondary scoring helping boost up the second lines, and it's required for this Nashville team. While top prospects Ellie Tovalin and Philip Tomasino with six goals apiece haven't had breakout campaigns, they remain better player, bottom six options, with top six development curves, rather than plugging in Matthew Olivier and, well, Nick Cousins, who does play. Above average goaltending, a functional D group that adds goal production at least, Yossi's 13 double-digit contribution, and an actual top-line goal production, and secondary scoring is why Nashville is third point percentage-wise, and none of that was predictable going in. If you're GM David Poyle, you add a depth D-man at the deadline. Why? Because he has at least going back the last three years. Getting a near-to-legit top four but five-spot left-hand defenseman to play with Benning would make this Nashville team better. It does take out Borowicki, but come playoff time, maybe you, based on the matchup, insert him for physicality in a game one, but a more skilled physical defenseman that could play up the lineup if this team was missing Yossi and or Ekholm is a really important add. What I want is for GM Poyle not to get a depth bottom pair defenseman, but really a legit top four defense rental that at worst can play bottom pair because Yossi and Ekholm are healthy, but left-hand D insurance for either or both if they were to get hurt. Given it is to replace taking out Borowicki, Montreal's Ben Sherratt would be a top example of a top four left-hand defenseman that can play top four quality as a rental. What I'm not suggesting, the more likely add of, say, Philadelphia defenseman Kevin Connaughton, that simply adds a defenseman of the same bottom pair value Nashville already has. 
The forward group is complex. The top line is rolling. Second line, maybe if Tovalin is getting swapped out for Cousins, you pick up a rental. Or even someone with term for Johansson and Cunning. But it's again that specific to make Cousins like a 13th forward because Coach Hines is keeping the top line and third line herd line together. So I'd watch for a left-hand top six, top nine value forward for Nashville. Montreal has right-wingers Josh Anderson and Tyler Toffoli. That, if left-wingers, was exactly what I was thinking for that top six spot. Trading for one of them would likely move Cunnin, not Tovalin or Slash Cousins, to the fourth line. Honestly, I can't find a Nashville fit left-winger of the NHL teams likely to be sellers. Like Columbus's Max Domi instead of Tovalin on the second line doesn't really feel worth it value-wise. But Tovalin, Johan with Anderson or Toffoli moving down Cunning to me would actually make Nashville even tougher to play against and add real goal production. It also would give Tomasino a top nine player, not fourth liner, in Cunning to play with. That, for all the playoff success in the Central Divisions, means playing deeper four-line teams. Nashville fans don't have to worry about Forsberg's extension. Start thinking of good player fits, one at defense and one at forward. GM David Poyle can add rentals and reward this group, and Forsberg is going to resign prior to free agency in the summer. My guess, 9.09 million times eight years, which is something I've already said before. I think Poyle is a buyer, as with a playoff team, he usually is. Nashville, 46 games played, 28-14-4 record, 60 points, second in points in the Central, 652 point percentage, third best in the Central and Western Conference. Streak, winners of one, goal differential, plus 19. Nashville slotting into the fourth division spot in February is likely based on schedule. Division games with Dallas and Winnipeg to start, play again. Nashville in February plays Dallas twice. Of Nashville's seven games, those are the most important for Nashville to win. Washington, Carolina, Florida, and Tampa Bay being the elite four Nashville faces additionally. I see March schedule level out. However, Nashville hasn't especially done well against the cup contender teams. This team in Nashville is competitive. Nashville scores more, but the Eastern Conference games are going to be tough for Nashville to get points in in February. If there's struggles in Nashville in February, it's expected. Think of this as a true litmus test for the team to see how Nashville performs point-wise over this seven-game stretch. It won't be as daunting come March. The bank points Nashville earned is why Nashville should weather February. Again, key best case for Nashville is winning in regulation the division games versus the division teams below them in the standings in February. The Athletic at the All-Star break has Nashville projected to finish with 102 points, third in the Central Division, a point more in their prediction than St. Louis and two points behind Vegas in the Western Conference. I see St. Louis ahead of Nashville at season's end, but it's as close as I think as the Athletic projects. The Athletic says Nashville has a 2% chance to win the Stanley Cup, 6% chance of missing the postseason. St. Louis did not play since our last podcast. My start of the regular season prediction was St. Louis to finish fifth, so they are less of a surprise than Nashville, to be sure. Still, in fairness, they have performed better than both Dallas and Winnipeg, as I predicted. And if not for Nashville's big surprise, my prediction still was way too low for St. Louis in picking them fifth. The return to a top division team that St. Louis is and the bounce-back campaign for St. Louis is full-on. It's St. Louis with two games in hand on Nashville at the All-Star break. However, Nashville's point percentage mark is currently higher at the pause, and that's why I flipped the team's order for this podcast. I've been using point percentage for the segments since sometime in January. Think of it this way, as St. Louis is three points behind Nashville. They are required to win two games to move ahead at the same game played total until, as more games are played, it's adjusted, say, when a team loses next. It means it's very close between Nashville and St. Louis right now, and it's not at current automatic St. Louis slots above Nashville in the standings as it was most of the first half of the season after St. Louis's great start. 
mid-season report card. In net, I'm surprised how good Billy Huso has been, especially because last year made me question his ability to even be a capable backup at the NHL level. He now looks like the best starter option. Nine three and one record, two shutouts. I also thought Jordan Bennington started the season good. Actually, probably better than good, but not sure of the dovetail to less stellar play that sees him 11-9-3 record with one shutout by comparison. But St. Louis's success is having both goalies play well regardless of how the workload is divvied up. Low-key props to Charlie Lindgren, who came in during injuries and won all five games he appeared in. There isn't a goalie controversy in St. Louis, and it's at a playoff caliber level. The D group has played better than a year ago with basically what amounts to no additional player personnel. The health of Colton Pareko and return to his quality play is where you should start. Tory Krug and Justin Falk solid again this year and the emergence of Nico Mikola once he got his chance because he didn't make the opening roster six and he showed some growth in his game from a bottom pair value from a year ago to an 18 minute time on ice average and near to top four value. That's eased the burden on Marco Scandella who has struggled most of the group and arguably is the lone one of the group. Scandella's been able to be sheltered well within the D group in saying that, especially because Mikola was able to be good playing up the lineup, and that allowed Coach Berube to balance the D group minutes. It's to say if Marco Scandella is the team's worst on a night-to-night basis, it's really not that bad. Then you have three bottom pair guys that you need one of to fill out the last D group six in vet Robert Bertuzzo, the younger Jake Wallman, and rookie standout Scott Pernovich. That's eight defensemen for six spots, and for the most part, all in all, they've been solid. Wallman, who won a bottom pair role out of camp after injuries, found himself outside looking in. He is more than capable as a bottom pair NHL defenseman. St. Louis possibly looking to add a defense player piece would strengthen this group to be sure. That rumor has a lot of traction as we get closer to the deadline. But if St. Louis were to stand pat and said, to me, the D group they have is balanced, it's well-constructed in its makeup. It doesn't require a player piece or something that's glaringly needing fixing. The right addition would add to the depth already in place. Ben Sherrod, who we talked about earlier, the Montreal defenseman, was one of the defensemen that has been mentioned as one that St. Louis has interest in. Jordan Cairo continued where he left off a year ago, maybe even brought it up an extra notch, and it also gives a trigger man for playmaker Robert Thomas to have maximized his value. Vladimir Tarasenko's return to all-star form also has additional Russians, the added Pavel Bushnevich, and the out-of-nowhere breakout of Ivan Barbashev to become key contributors. Cairo's team-leading 17 goals, Tarasenko, Bushnevich, and Barbashev's 15 each, And Thomas, a team-leading 27 apples. That actually takes pressure off of the trio you would expect to be driving all of the offense. That was pretty much like a year ago in Ryan O'Reilly, David Perron, and the off-season acquisition Brandon Saad. However, they are contributing to what is a nightmare of a top nine forward group to play against in St. Louis. O'Reilly's double digits, 10 goals, sawed 15 goals. Perron has eight goals in 31 games played. At this point, you realize we haven't even talked about the most injured of the top nine, Braden Shen, and still in 28 games played, he has reached 10 goals and double digits. Thus, the remaining players kept then really in full health for fourth line duty with St. Louis, and a lot of them can play up the lineup. Underappreciated PK specialists Tyler Bozak, Oscar Sundquist, Clem Costin have even effective fourth-line value players could play in most NHL teams' top nine forward groups. Logan Brown, via trade, PTO pickup James Neal, Dak Joshua are unable to crack this St. Louis lineup when it's at full health capable NHLers, and you can include Nathan Walker in this group from that forward depth perspective. Top prospects, Alex Torpachenko saw some time, looked well, and Jake Neighbors sent back to junior, but he really isn't far off from challenging with Torpachenko for roster spots in the coming years. The elephant in the room was Tarasenko's off-season trade request, 
and yet his value raised to be able to trade him probably reminded everyone why keeping him in St. Louis is the better option. The last indication was that he still preferred getting traded, but it's practically quieter than crickets on his being moved now, and that's probably the best case scenario, even if it lingers right up to the trade deadline, because if he remains once past it, Tarasenko still being there fully contributing won't be an in-season distraction anymore that has become a non-distraction currently, in all honesty, as it is now. The only St. Louis deadline day addition to watch is whether they add on the defense or stand pat, and I guess if Tarasenko is truly staying, Again, we're not hearing very much about him not staying. I always wanted a team reevaluation clause for St. Louis if Tarasenko did get traded and base it on what the return was. I think Tarasenko's value staying is best option for team and player now. I also think that if you subtracted Tarasenko regardless of the return, St. Louis could be potentially less dynamic, but they probably have more than enough forward depth to be a playoff-bound team if, say, he was on IR and couldn't play. And that says nothing of what that return for him would look like. I said Nashville had addition by subtraction, and St. Louis, likewise, top six let Jaden Swartz go, but traded for Bushnevich. They chose to sign Brandon Sod and let Mike Hoffman go to free agency. Both have made the chemistry and goal production better of the top nine group. The bottom six that lacks secondary scoring is a big place to look at why St. Louis is better this year. Certainly, Barbashev and Thomas are better, but St. Louis kept them and Coach Berube put them into situations to succeed. The subtraction is St. Louis moved on from Sammy Blay, Zach Sanford, Kyle Clifford, Jacob De La Rose, and is keeping forward Mackenzie McEckern way further down the depth chart where he really belongs as a fourth line, last stopgap player forward option. That five-player turnover group that I've just talked about played 172-man games a year ago in the shortened season while providing 23 goals, combined while being defensively all-in-all porous. GM Doug Armstrong kept his better depth players, in my opinion, and I've said as much in earlier podcasts, and courageously moved on from players that when too many were all in the lineup together, it actually didn't give St. Louis forward depth like it has enjoyed this year, having seven players and double-digit goals that Perron certainly in the second half will join. And last year, over the full 56 games played, St. Louis had a total of six, as Sanford, with 10 goals, just made the cut of the double-digit goal scores. St. Louis relied on five players to do all the heavy lifting for their goal production. This year, that's a key spot to look at St. Louis's improvement back to the top-tier playoff team status. There are moments of inconsistency with St. Louis, but way less than a year ago. Still, the Central Division is, well, more competitive than that one-off West Division of a year ago. And I think that benefits St. Louis because it forces them to stay on task to get into the playoffs. However, Nashville doesn't seem too interested in not battling for a division playoff spot. That third guaranteed playoff position is still a battle between St. Louis and Nashville. I expect St. Louis in that spot comes season's end, but it's also going to require St. Louis demonstrating they earn it because they won't simply finish third by default. St. Louis, 44 games played, 26-13-5 record, 57 points, fourth in the central, 648 point percentage, also fourth in the division and Western Conference. Streak, losers of one, goal differential plus 32. St. Louis will have two games in hand on Nashville after the All-Star break and not as condensed of a schedule as some division rivals. With the exception of a road game in Toronto, the eight games in February St. Louis is given the lack of competition they face, probable that they could run the table. Going 7-1-0 and record-wise is realistic and it would force Nashville to try and keep up with St. Louis at that win percentage pace. That said, if St. Louis only goes, say, 5-3-0, I'd actually consider that 
a disappointment because only Toronto of those eight games played in the month of February is a team with an over 500 point percentage that St. Louis is going to be playing. It's also worrying because the competition won't be really all that good. St. Louis has to avoid bad habits and that's the most important team goal in February I think for St. Louis. Just can't see St. Louis losing ground in February on the top group but it's St. Louis's to determine. And maybe the Athletic can provide some poster board material for the locker room. The Athletic at the All-Star break has St. Louis projected to finish with 101 points, one less than Nashville. That would make them the Western Conference first wildcard team. A 1% chance to win the Stanley Cup, 8% chance of missing the postseason. I still think St. Louis finishes third in the division, not fourth, but I have shared the Athletic's predictions just as a counterpoint to my own for all the teams while we're doing the mid-season report. Listen to part two to continue with the segments for Dallas, Winnipeg, Chicago, and Arizona's mid-season report cards on Central Division Hockey, the podcast. Would you like to come home to a bartender who will fix you any cocktail you want? I'll have an old-fashioned. I'll have a margarita. Now you can with the Bartesian Home Cocktail Maker. Bartesian is a sleek machine the size of a coffee maker that makes premium cocktails at the touch of a button. Choose from over 50 different cocktails, from classics to the most exotic premium cocktails served in the best bars today. You'll always get freshly mixed, perfectly balanced cocktails with the Bartesian Cocktail Maker. And now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever at bartesian.com holiday. Entertaining? The Bartesian is ideal for parties. No need to stock all kinds of individual mixers for complicated recipes. Every guest gets the cocktail of their choice in seconds. The Bartesian makes a wonderful gift for anyone who loves a fine premium cocktail. Now get Bartesian's best Black Friday deal ever. It's available right now, only at bartesian.com holiday. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com holiday for Bartesian's best deal ever. Only at bartesian.com holiday. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 